Well, good morning, beloved. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord. I'm incredibly excited to be here because I've been in quarantine, got out of quarantine on Wednesday, you know, this goofy stuff. So it's just really cool to be here and preach. And happy uh, Super Bowl Sunday. I know uh, we're looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the commercials, I think. I don't really care who wins, but uh, I want to welcome those who are tuning in uh, at home and all of us uh, gathered here this morning. I'm Jonathan Coleman, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. The past few weeks, we've been navigating through a series called Wake Up to the Second Half of the Gospel. We are looking at research from a Barna survey that revealed 10 transformational stops along the Christian journey. And what research showed is that a lot of Christians get stuck halfway or float around the process of spiritual maturity. Uh, meaning a person can come to faith in Christ, they can uh, find that they have a wonderful church home, they can get involved in the church, but that's where they stop. They don't see that there's these other steps in the process of spiritual maturity. And so today, we want to show how we can experience this profound love for God. We saw last week on number eight, when we choose to surrender our lives, we begin to depend upon God and his will. And we find many incredible things happen when we do the will of God. And so as we remain constantly dependent upon him, that spiritual maturation takes place to where, as a Christian, we begin to experience number eight and number nine and ten and delight in him. There was a man who came home from a long day at work. He was totally exhausted. He entered into his son's bedroom before his son went to bed. And he was just irritated about his day. And then his son was asking all of these questions. He said, Daddy, how much money do you make? And the father grunted, oh, I don't want to answer this, son. But the son pressed forward. He said, I mean, how much do you make an hour, Dad? And he just really didn't want to answer these questions, and he was just not in the mood for the games. And so he just said, okay, they pay me $25 an hour, son. And the son said, can I borrow 10, Dad? And the father was like, no, just go to bed. And he shut off the lights and slammed the door. Well, the following morning, this overworked dad he felt so guilty about how he treated his son. He apologized to him and slipped out a $10 bill and slid it across the table during breakfast. The boy lit up like a Christmas tree. He ran back into his room. He grabbed his piggy bank. He unplugged it, and he started pouring out money on the kitchen table, and he counted out, and he's sliding quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies over toward his dad. And finally, he came, and he reached, and he pulled out the $10 bill and slid it all and said, Dad, here's 25 bucks. Can I buy an hour for your time? You see, that little boy wanted to spend time with his dad. He wanted to spend time so badly that he was willing to pay for it. 
And I think God is like that little boy. God literally paid everything to spend time with us. He gave all to remove every barrier, every obstacle, unlock every door so that we can delight in him and he can delight in us. You see, God busts the piggy bank daily to pay for our time, really. Not literally, but desiring to have this quality and quantity time. And he slides all of himself across the table. He wants to show us his, his magnificence. And, and a lot of times he puts a sunrise or a sunset or some kind of form of creation or some kind of experience or godsidence in our lives for us to come and spend some time and delight and love him. Because God delights in us. You know, on Sunday morning, before I preach, I try to say every time, good morning, beloved. And somebody asked me, why do you say that, Jonathan? Why do you do that? And it comes from a book, and I don't want to get into that, but, but I think in the heart of hearts, I want you to know that you're beloved. And if you don't hear anything else from the sermon, I want you to at least hear those first three words, good morning, beloved. Because the world tries to tell us the opposite of our belovedness. And in that belovedness as sons and daughters of God, in that belovedness, he delights in us. And it's amazing in that belovedness. You know, it's, it's amazing how God's action and word and faithfulness proclaims this and speaks to this in our lives. And God is waiting for us to delight in him and make it a posture for our life. Well, let's look at Psalm 37, 4 through 6. And it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's got so much in it, but I just want to really unpack one verse. Well, let's read it together here. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. So what does delight mean? Delight means to take pleasure in. I can delight in a warm Krispy Kreme donut, can't I? I can delight in this, Emily's little dog is so doggone cute. I can delight in that little puppy. We can delight in so many things. We can delight in one another and in our relationship. But what does it mean to delight in God? Well, nothing or no one or any experience should give us more pleasure than that relationship with the eternal, divine, holy one, our God. Nothing should take priority of our personal relationship to God. It's more important than your relationship with your spouse. It's more important than your relationship with your children. It's more important than your relationship to your business. It's more important for your relationship, your relationship to anybody or anyone or anything. And when we delight first in him, all things fall in order in wonderful health and rank. And as we open our lives to his will and ways, God shows us that we, and that's what this psalm proclaims, we can find satisfaction in him completely. 
We see this in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Let's look at this beautiful passage of Scripture together. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did this. He did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. From this passage of scripture, we see Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem, and he stops along the way to a suburb city. We put it that, just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, Bethany. And this was a place that he resided. It was a hangout that he had with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's his usual home. And Martha is getting busy doing, getting dinner ready, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha has this servant's heart, and she preps this dinner. But in these moments, something's going on with Mary. Something's welling up in her life. If you would have followed her, you would have seen her maybe whimpering softly so that no one would hear. And then she would go to this special place where she had this pint of very, very expensive perfume. And it said that it's made out of nard. And nard is a flower that grows in the Himalayas. It's very, very rare. And it has an incredible, beautiful scent. This isn't dollar store Uh, near the cashier type of musky jasmine perfume. This is like Chanel, thousands and thousands of dollars an ounce for this stuff. And so she finds it. She's careful as she carries it. And she goes and she falls at his feet while pouring this perfume all over Jesus' calloused feet. And then she takes her clumps of hair And she washes that perfume into his feet. This is the only thing that's on her mind. It's total adoration. It would have made, I think, made me feel uncomfortable watching this. And it probably made everyone feel uncomfortable. But it is her way of loving and adoring God. It's her posture This week, I thought more and more about delighting in God. And it's not necessarily a practice, my friends. It is a posture of our lives, a posture of our heart. I believe Mary took inventory of all that Jesus was to her, his actions, his great love for her, and she poured out her adoration at his feet in gratitude and literally worshipped at his feet. And she pulled out all stops. 
She poured out extravagance upon him, which represented all that she had. And Judas objects. And even in Mark and Matthew's gospel, their version of the story, Judas is not singled out. All the disciples were saying, why, this is a waste. Don't let her do that. This could have been sold for years' wages. But Jesus is saying, leave her alone. She bought it so she might keep it for the day of my burial. And he's given a hint. And he says, you always have the poor among you, but you will always not have me. Jesus commended her extravagance. His great love infiltrated her life, and she had nothing but to pour out everything upon his feet. You see, I think his steps took her steps into a different reality. And you look at the, I want you to look at another example of Mary, and it's the same Mary. There's two stories here, but they're two different stories. Luke 10, 38 through 42. It says, Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Again, Jesus is in the same place. We find Martha busy prepping. Martha's sister Mary wants, also wants to be a good host too, but she has a different way of approaching it. She sits at his feet again, listens to him teach. And we see once again Mary's posture toward her Lord Jesus. And when Martha complains to Jesus that, it, that her sister isn't helping, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. It reminds me of the Brady Bunch. Marsha, Marsha. No, it's Martha, Martha. He wants her to get this. He says, you're focused on things when you should be sitting at the feet of the king. That kind of rhymes a little bit. You're so focused on things when you should be sitting at the feet of a king. And Mary is doing what is right, he says. It reminds me of a, a wonderful story about an 11-year-old boy named Tyler Sullivan who skipped school one day, but it was for a good reason. Former President Barack Obama was visiting Tyler's hometown for an event, and Tyler's dad was going to introduce President Obama. And imagine Tyler's teacher's surprise when she received an excusal note written on presidential letterhead saying, please excuse Tyler yesterday. He was with me, President Barack Obama. You see, Jesus defends Mary's neglect of her hosting duties by basically saying to everyone there, especially Martha, please excuse Mary. She was with me, Jesus, the King of Kings. And that's where she took those moments to adore him. And it was her response, her response, and no one else's. Martha doesn't realize the moment, and it gives us insight on what keeps us from delighting in God. Martha's just plain busy. You have to give her credit, though. She's in that busyness. In both of these passages of Scripture, we see her servant heart. But being and becoming 
comes before doing and action. Being and becoming comes before doing and action. I know there are times when I get lured into using my energy serving God constantly. Usually after about two hours after I wake up, there's this just constant buzzing of the phone and everything. And I miss sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ in his presence and posturing myself and delighting in him before I serve him. And that's not right, man. I can't be the reverend, the call, the minister, the man, the husband, the dad, the father, the friend without sitting at his feet and posturing my life before him. It's capturing those moments as we love on God more and more. We can't, have, we can't help to have our life formed into a posture of adoration and worship and attention to the minute. Jesus is basically saying, Martha, Martha, don't get lured into using up your energy on what doesn't matter Only one thing's matter, and it's a better option, and Mary has taken that, and it can never be taken away from her. Jesus is basically saying that, and it's something I think that we should behold, and it's a large part of the second half of the gospel of just being and remaining and abiding in him, not only depending, but adoring and delighting in him as a posture for our life. Erwin McManus writes a book, called Seizing Your Divine Moment, he writes this, What if you knew somewhere in front of you was a moment that would change your life forever? A moment rich with potential. A moment filled with endless possibilities. What if you knew there was a moment coming, a divine moment, one where God would meet you in such a way that nothing would be the same again? What if there was a moment, a defining moment, Were the choices you made determined the course and momentum of your future? How would you treat that moment? How would you prepare for it? The only moment that you must take responsibility for is right now is the one in front of you. The moment you are in right now waits to be seized. And that is what Mary did. She took that moment... And she went to the feet of Jesus two times. And she placed herself before him. And Jesus saw her as a beloved daughter. And her life was never the same because his words of hope entered into her life like a breaking of a new dawn. You know, it's quite possible that Jesus was the only man who saw her that way. And I think about that. And in those moments that we have and how we see and what we say to others to make them feel their belovedness. You understand what I'm saying? It's these moments that we seize and when we adore and delight in God, we cannot help but to delight in others around us. Another thing that keeps us from delighting in God, I think, is our misconception of God. We've been taught... God is primarily about love and forgiveness and mercy and justice. And that is true. Those are true. And we we have all of those things that are in the first five things that we saw there. But it's not often that the church states that God can be experienced in profound ways. Experienced with all of who we are. Best-selling Christian artist David Crowder had a moment like that, an experience that changed his worldview of God. 
He was in high school and he regularly attended church. And Crowder thought that he had God all figured out. However, one particular day, he was feeling down and he wandered down to the local mall and he bought a Chick-fil-A sandwich and he sat down to eat it. As he bit into that delicious sandwich, which is freaking awesome, Chick-fil-A, David realized that all things good come from God. He began to cry. He began to be grateful. Grateful to God in a deeper way. It didn't happen in a church. It didn't happen at Sunday night youth group. It happened in a mall food court. He described the experience as a moment of unexpected joy. He wrote this. That's when I realized that every second is an opportunity for us to experience God. There's not a second he's not there and available to us. You know, time and time again, I've heard people testify God's presence coming into their lives in those divine moments in powerful ways, yet also in the simple moments. Did you notice that Mary had two experiences? She had one that was huge, where she just poured out these resources on him, but then she just sat, letting Martha prepare the food, and just sat and listened to Jesus. Just simply putting things aside and sitting at his feet and gathering this greater understanding that blows up her human mind box. He experienced her Savior, her beloved. You know, I opened up this message with Psalm 37. And verse 4 says, take delight in the Lord. And that's a posture that we can do unto ourselves and unto God. But it finishes with this. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, at first glance, it almost seems like God's a genie, like Aladdin and rubbing the genie lamp. God, give me the desires of my heart. Well, it's really about the fact that when we delight in loving him, our desires are going to be aligned in his holiness and his holy ways and his holy purposes for us. You know, if, if we delighted in the Lord as a way of getting what we want, if that were the case, we would be performing for God in order to receive lavish blessings. And that's sick, man. That's really not what this verse says nor what it means, nor what we see in Mary. Keep in, the, that, keep in mind that delight comes before desire. In other words, when you delight in the Lord, your desire will become his desire. Another way of putting it is this. When you put God first, you actually put yourself first in a way of wholeness and right living, in a way of wellness. You love yourself as he loves you. Did you hear that? You love yourself as beloved, as he loves you as beloved. That's what Mary found. It went into her. It infiltrated her existence. You see, one of the greatest questions you can ask God on a day-to-day basis is this. Lord, what is the desire of your heart for my heart? 
When you delight in the Lord, God will show a way of life, a rhythm of life that satisfies you and I completely. Think for a moment about your greatest needs, my friends. Your greatest needs. Right now. Your greatest needs. I hope in those needs you don't find things. But what you could probably name is things like peace, wisdom, character, love, joy, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and self-control. That's what we find in him. And these are things that are not tangible, but they're a essence and go out and live also in us. These non-material qualities come, I believe, and grasped from writing this message that come from posturing our life in delight of Him. Our existence. I'd like for you to take a look at a video of two ladies who are part of our congregation who delight in the Lord. Let's look at this video together. The grace and mercy that I feel is tremendous from the first half to the second half. Um, I have a better understanding of being a child of God and what that means. And, And God is not just God the Father, but God my Father, my spiritual Father. It's not an overnight process. It is a journey. And it's not a a linear journey. It's not where you check off a list, but you do find yourself going deeper with God and becoming more aware of his presence in your life and in day-to-day life, in, in, in mundane things and in ordinary life, you realize he's there and you see him all around you. And you come to a place, I would say a place of abundance where He's, he's been there for you during hard times, and you come to a trust and a deeper awareness of his love. My delight in God is spending time with him, like a father-daughter day, being in scripture, being in prayer, being with somebody that wants to listen to me, that cares about everything that I'm going through. I feel God's delight, and um, even, even when I make a mistake, I feel like he's not there to judge, to condemn, but that he, he delights in me and that gives me freedom to come to be myself. You know, um, this week I really sort of wrapped my brain around some of the lessons and uh, I think the greatest lesson I learned this week and I, I tried to articulate it, write it down, is is that God doesn't want what's good for me. God doesn't even want what's better for me. God wants what is best for Jonathan. Best. And you heard from these ladies' testimony, and see God in the mundane and everywhere, in the presence, and they're practicing, delighting in Him. And it, I, I believe it's filling their lives up more and more and more. And when you spend time learning what He wants, you always get God's best. And His best will make fruitfulness grow and glow from you. And you'll make people feel their best. This past week, I I always watch uh, Groundhog Day on Groundhog Day. And 
Bill Murray, at the end of the movie, he starts getting it. He starts giving himself back. He starts finding, in the, in the mundane, he starts seeing miracles and practicing uh, himself to become a better self to others. And people can't help but to, to just draw nourishment from him. As a matter of fact, he comes up to this guy, and this guy goes, good morning. And he goes, mm, good morning, buongiorno. And he tells this guy how a great day he's going to be. And the guy goes... And you can see that guy's day is not going to be the same. And I think it sounds, and there's every in these moments and these practices, as we love and delight in him, God pours out his spirit upon us to where we love and delight in others around us. And people experience the fruitfulness of his ministry through us. And it's a posture, man. It is. I think it's what Paul wrote in his prayer. Listen to this from Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that in Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with the full measure of the fullness of God. 